Our lesson this morning will be Galatians chapter 5. So, Bible's in the back, reading from the ESV version of Scripture. Um, Again, Bible's in the back if you don't have one. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Galatians 5, 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge some translations for the flesh. But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. May God add a blessing to the reading of his infallible, holy, authoritative word this morning. It's been called the Magna Carta of the Christian life, Christian freedom by the Reformers, because God, through the Apostle Paul, is teaching us how, that, how we can be free from sin, from guilt, from condemnation. It is by God's sheer grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. This book, as we know, was written by Paul, the apostle, inspired by God to churches that God had raised up in the regions of Galatia through the preaching of the gospel by the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 13 and 14. That salvation he's been preaching is by faith alone, apart from works. Man, women, or child can't add anything to their salvation. It is the work of God. It is, it is the gospel of grace, the gospel of faith. It is the true gospel. And any other gospel being preached, Paul said, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, is anathema, accursed, damned. The preaching and the one who is preaching it. Hard words. That's because some Judaizers had come into the churches, these young churches in Galatia, and they were saying, you can have faith in Christ, you need to have faith in Christ, but you also need to add works of the law, starting with the rite of circumcision. It was not enough that Christ died. It was insufficient that Christ lived a perfect life. He died as a substitution in our place. That's not enough. You have to add works in order to be made right with God. If there's ever a verse of Scripture in Galatians that y'all need to burn into your mind and into your heart, it is this one, chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Paul speaking to fellow Jews. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We said that justification is a legal term. To be, cle- to be declared just, vindicated before the bar of God's justice in God's courtroom. And in order to be declared right with God, we must be forgiven of our sins. The debt that we owe, the penalty we owe because of our rebellion and sin against God must be paid for and we must be made righteous or seen righteous before God. And Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel, is that Christ died on the cross and he paid the debt we owe. He dies in our place, taking the penalty, paying the debt as a substitute, as our substitute, and our sins are imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us. That's the truth of the gospel. He gets our sins, we get his righteousness what a savior we have it is imputed it is reckoned it's a counting term it has been counted to our account in chapters three and four paul is contrasting and arguing against law and gospel we don't have time to get into that this morning you get it's online you can watch the videos or download the podcast whatever you want and he's contrasting law and gospel in chapters 3 and 4. Slavery and freedom, law and promise. And he uses Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews, and Sarah, his wife, and the promised son, Isaac, in contrast to Moses, who received the law in Mount Sinai, to Hagar, the slave woman that Sarah gave to, uh, to Abraham, and to Ishmael, born in slavery. And I think we could summarize this chapters 3 and 4, by saying that Abraham, who received the sign and seal of the Old Testament covenant promise circumcision, was made right before God before the rite of circumcision. It's not by what he did, it's by who he believed in and the promises in which God gave him, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. In Galatians 3, 6, it says this, Abraham believed God, and it was counted, it was imputed to him as righteousness. That's before circumcision, and the Old Testament laws were given, the law of Moses. And now in chapters 5 and 6, there's a a, a major transition going on, right? Chapters 5 and 6, Paul now is going from the the, the practical, excuse me, from 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 the formal principle, his apostolic authority, the authority of the Scripture, to the material, which is the truth of the gospel, that's in chapters 2 and 3, uh, 3 and 4. And now in chapter 5, he's going to the ethical. So chapters 1 and 2, the formal principle, the authority of scriptures. 3 and 4, the material, the truth of the gospel, justification by faith alone. Chapters 5 and 6, now is the ethical, the application, the ethical aspects of our freedom because of our justification. It's a major transition in the book. And what Paul is going to show us And show them, the church, when he first wrote it, is how true faith that justifies is proven by the experience of believers. There will be be transformation. There will be new desires, a new heart, a new longing. And more importantly, genuine, justified Christians will have a new love. A new love. Four simple Things for our outline movements. One, stand firm. Verse one. 
Verse 2, don't fall away. Then run well. They were running well. Somebody, somebody tripped them up. Stand firm, fall away, run well, and then love others. Very simple. Number one, stand firm. Look at verse one again with me. For, we've been talking about freedom, we've been talking about slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Literally, literally in the original language, it says, for freedom, Christ freed you. The noun, the verb, the words freedom, and it is both the means and the ends of the Christian life. Everything about the gospel, the true gospel, is about freedom. Jesus' mission, he came to die for our sins, is about liberation, about redemption, about setting us free. In fact, the verb has set us free is in the Greek aorist tense referring to a, a single action in the past with, or with, is now been completed Past actions in the past, now completed. Jesus said, it is finished. It's over. And now we are reaping the benefits of the cross for freedom. And, and this freedom, we'll, we'll jump into, we'll talk a lot about this, is not freedom, is not freedom to self, to self-actualization, self-achievement, self-fulfillment. Is the freedom from the power and the penalty and the slavery to sin. It's the freedom not to try to justify your life because it has already been done for you in the gospel. Remember, you're not children of the Hagar, uh, of the slave woman. We are children of the promise. Like Isaac, of the promise, free from the promise that was given. And, and, and they, they, they are, we are ones who are heirs with Abraham, if you remember, because we have the faith of Abraham. Freedom is, is, you know, you can't talk. I was in, I've been in this all week. You can't talk about freedom in America, right? You can't really can't talk about freedom in America without recognizing how passionate Americans, including myself, are about freedom in our country. That's good. We enjoy the freedoms. It, it, it's, it's a great privilege, but like anything else that is good can be turned into an idol, so can our freedoms be used for wrong behavior. Patriotism, the love of our country, is biblical. But only if patriotism, patriotism and I'm, I love our nation. I love the freedoms we have. And the men and women who fought for them, continue to fight for them, died for them. But it must not become the primary thing in my life. What needs to be first and foremost in my life is my love for God, my love for Christ, my love for each other. When that doesn't happen, there's a problem. We, we should love and hold to the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom to vote. But if we're honest, many times what we want when we talk about freedom is personal freedom to do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want. If we're honest, that's the case. Sociologist Robert Bella said this, freedom is perhaps the most resonant, deeply held American value. Yet freedom turns out to mean, yet freedom turns out to mean being left alone by others, not having other people's values, ideas, or styles of life forced upon you, being free from arbitrary authority in work, in family, and political life, end quote. That's not what Christian freedom is all about. We are not free to selfish ambitions to do what we want when we want. We are free from something 
to something. We are free from something to something. True freedom, John Stott says, is freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and for others. Jesus set us free. But Jesus' liberation for the believer is freedom from slavery to fallen human nature, to the flesh, the part of me that wants to do what I want, not what God wants, the corrupt and weak and rebellious me. True freedom, again, is not self-fulfillment. It's not political. It's not ethnic freedom. Self-actualization is not the kind of freedom we will see later on that leads to license. Jesus set us free from what? Sin, the Bible teaches us. From guilt, from the curse, Paul says. That he was crucified on our behalf. He died in our place, taking the curse that we belong upon himself so that we don't have to face the wrath of God. Christ set us free from death. For the tomb is empty, and the third day he was raised to life. And we are in Christ, and death is not our end. We, too, will have hope of eternal life. Lastly, Jesus died as, as well to free us from Satan's bondage, from the dominion of the powers of darkness. Hebrews chapter 4, God gave us, gave us Jesus, sent his son to the cross, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death We're subject to lifelong slavery, victory over curse, over sin, over death, over the powers of principalities. That's what Paul said in Galatians 1. It was Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It was Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, set us free from the present evil age by the will of God the Father for him to be glory forever and ever. Chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And because we fail to keep the law, we fail to keep the moral law of God, we are cursed. And yet Christ dies as our curse. He's freed us from the law, deadly curse against sin, for my failure to keep it, your failure to keep it. Jesus, Jesus alone has kept the law I and you could not keep. He paid the penalty, the debt. I could not pay, you could not pay, and won the victory, the victory that you and I could not have won. Now I'm free. I'm free to be the one God created me to be. I'm free to be the one uh, that God wants me to be, that God wants me to do. We're going to talk about doing today and obedience. I'm free to obey. Before I chose what sin I'm going to do, Now that Christ has set me free from the curse, set me free from the power of the devil, set me free from the tyranny of sin, I am free to choose to love him. I am free to obey. I'm no longer under the law. I'm no longer relying upon the law for my acceptance before God. There's nothing I can do to win God's acceptance. He's already done it for me. And that is the key, family, to gospel, free gospel living. Therefore, he says, stand firm. A command resulting from what Christ has done. The freedom that Christ has given you, stand firm in it. That's what Paul is saying. And do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the Old Testament laws and regulations in trying to make yourself right with God, justified, forgiven, and accepted by God. Don't go back. I would assume, and I think we all can assume, 
that it's possible to go back. The, the gospel of freedom can be lost in our lives. That's why he says, stand firm. Notice Paul, this is classic Paul. Classic Paul theology, okay? Vital importance. First, the indicative, the facts. Christ has set you free. Fact, reality, objective truth. Therefore, stand firm. Imperative, the command. A lot of times we mix that up. We hear the commands and we don't hear the indicative. But Christ has set us free. He's forgiven us of our sin. We belong to him. Therefore, this is what we ought to do. We're already saved, already freed, already justified. But we must continually and diligently remember to preserve, to rejoice in and live in accordance with the freedom, the salvation, and the justification that Christ has got for us. We cannot lose ourselves. Salvation, we'll talk about that in a minute. But we can lose the freedom by returning back to enslavement, back to fear. That's why look at chapter one, uh, verse 1 again. It says, and do not again. See what it says? Do not submit again. What it's reminding them is you've been there already. You were enslaved to idols. You were enslaved to the flesh. You were enslaved to sin when you were worshiping pagan, uh, uh, pagan idolatry. Don't go back to that. You've been there already. Don't go back under the law. Remember we said that. We, Paul equates going back under the Mosaic law as the same thing as going back to pagan idol, idolatry worship. Saying don't go back there. Why go back under the law? Why go back to this moral and rule-based justification? You're just going back to the anxiety, to the uncertainty, to the guilt, to this burden. Put it on your back. Don't go back. Tim Keller says this. Ultimately, and this is true for us too, Ultimately, the Galatians and us face an either-or decision. Will they make Christ their treasure in whom they find their forgiveness and fulfillment or will they look to the law-keeping to circumcision itself, end quote. Corinthians 3, the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Freedom. Christ liberated his people. Christ liberated us that we may enjoy Freedom of the gospel, the freedom to be freely loved by God and to love others. And Paul's concern in verse 1 here is that their return to slavery is becoming more attractive than the gospel. That slavery is becoming more attractive to the gospel, to the one who bought them. And he says, don't go. Christ set you free. Stand in that freedom. Stand firm in that freedom. Don't go back to that slavery. Stand firm. Look, I tell you. Look, I say to you again, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. He's going to tell him, don't fall away. Now, just to be clear, according to this verse, this does not mean that if you're here this morning and you've not been circumcised, and I, and I don't want to know, don't raise your hand, and you're thinking, we're talking about this in church, it's in the Bible, that, you know, it's your mama's fault, you're going to hell. That's not what Paul is saying, right? That if you haven't been circumcised, Christ no advantage of you, right? That's not what he's saying. Like, don't go blame your parents. Don't call them on the phone. I'm still not quite sure how they figured out who was and who wasn't that day, but that's, that's another story. Is a test you got to pass? I don't know. But anyway, he's talking about circumcision in this context 
as the addition, adding to your already justification. He says, that's not going to help you. It's not going to help you at all. In fact, if that's what your hope is in, you're actually now obligated. The word obligated means in debt. If you think you're doing something to add to your justification, even if it's the mark of the Old Testament covenant, as a way to be justified, listen, take the whole law on because that's what you have to do. You're now accountable to the whole law. James tells us you violate one law, you violate them at all. So good luck with that. Christ then, he says, no advantage from you. In fact, you're falling away from grace. Paul said back in chapter two, if justification were the, by the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Trying to get right with God to be accepted by God by getting circumcised or any other deed, any other moral action, any other, I read my Bible, I pat myself on the back, I go to church, other than trusting Christ alone, who bore the cross and the curse for us, is back in slavery, okay? Hear me carefully. He says that not only is it slavery, it's utter uselessness. Why would it be useless, why would, it be, why would Christ be useless? I'll tell you why. Because we don't need him anymore. If you think you could do it on your own by the way in which you act and the deeds in which you do and the churches which you attend and the Bibles which you read, if that is your way of justification, you don't need Christ. Why bother? We're our own saviors. And we become, you know, he becomes completely unnecessary. We can't have it both ways. That's what Paul is saying. You can't have it both ways. You cannot try and earn your way into acceptance with God through your moral actions and be justified by grace. It's either by the law or by grace, either works or by faith. Either we rely on observing the law or we trust in Christ alone. Can't have it both ways. And if you continue, he says in verse four, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Again, verse four. It's choice of words. I mean, just put this in context, right? You are severed from Christ. Circumcision cut off. If you get circumcised, it means of justification, you're cutting yourself off from Christ. Rather than, which, which circumcision pointed to, being, being separated from sin and onto God, he's saying the opposite is true. You are, if you're going to run towards moral deeds as your justification, as you're accepted for God, you're actually cutting yourself off from the Savior. Some people look at this verse, verses 3 and 4, uh, especially verse 4, as a way of saying you can be saved, born again, sealed with the Spirit. Peter says, uh, uh, receiving an inheritance that is unperishable, uh, you know, will, will last forever, guarded till Christ comes. Jesus said, the Father and Son have you in their hands. And some people look at this verse and say, you know what? You could be a genuine Christian, born of His Spirit, filled with the Spirit, kept in heaven till Christ comes back, and then lose it. You're severed from Christ, okay? There are tons of scriptures, I already mentioned a few, that talk about those who are genuinely saved will preserve to the end and will genuinely be in glory because it's not your salvation to gain, it's not your salvation to lose. It is the work of God and God alone. Okay, I can go on and on, I won't. But think of the context here, okay? There's two possible ways to interpret this passage according to the rest of the Bible. Number one, Paul has been talking to believers. He uses the word we, we, we over and over again. He talks about the Holy Spirit work among them. He's talking to believers. And therefore, when he talks about chapter, verse 4, severed from Christ, fallen away from grace, he is not talking about losing their salvation. He is talking about the need of daily grace. 
daily grace to live in which they are depriving themselves from the bread that God wants to give them every day. If they go back to the law living justified, they're removing themselves from the sphere and the power and the work of Christ. Martin Luther wrote this. You are no longer in the realm of grace. Paul's talking to believers. And I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, if you want to go back to slavery, you're, you're missing out. Why would you want to do that? You're not in the realm of the power, the love, the work of grace. That's possible. That's what I think. The other way it's possible to understand this in context of the rest of the Bible is that Paul is talking to the church and he's saying the message of the gospel that you are preaching. If you're going to start preaching a message of of salvation by works and grace, your message, the gospel being preached at your local gathering has been severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. And the reason why that may be a possibility, look at verse 4 again. The word you, three times, you are severed, you would be justified, you have fallen from grace, is not you. It's southern. It's y'all. It's plural. He's not talking to individuals. He's talking to the church. That's possible. He's talking to the church. Sort of like the church in the Ephesian church in Revelation 2. There'll be a lampstand that will be removed if they do not repent. He's not talking about individual salvation. He's talking about the local assembly. So either way, and the point is, don't go back to the yoke of slavery. He says, I'm confident, verse 10, that you'll listen, you'll pay attention. You'll show that you are truly gospel people. So we are to take off this heavy yoke of law-keeping, and what are we, else, what are we to put on? When you, hear, when you hear heavy yoke of law-keeping, that should say something to you. What, what yoke are we supposed to put on? The yoke of Christ. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I, I'm gentle, I'm meek and lowly and hard, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So what are some of the ways that you and I, what are some of the ways that you and I can recognize that we're living under grace instead of the law? One of the signs is if you've ever been criticized, pastors never get criticized. You ever get left behind or, you know, slighted by others? If that is devastating to you, destruction to you, and you are, you're, you're subtly living by the law. Your God is now the God of approval of others. Not that you should love it, but the gospel says that we are accepted and loved by God. That's our identity. That's our identity. If, if we are, if we get angry and bitter over maybe a job that was passed over you knowing that you should have got that. And you become more angry, more resentful for being passed over. You're living by the law. Your focus is on you, not on the gospel. But if we are living by grace, we're resting in the promises and the purposes of God, we'll be able to live and love others even in the midst of that. Even when we know that maybe... Something shouldn't, didn't go our way. 
The problem that we face, all of us face, is that we are free. As believers in Christ, if you're a Christian here this morning, been born of his spirit, you're free in Christ. But we do not always live free, right? Let's be honest. We find ourselves slipping back into old ways, old patterns, old idols that lure us back approval of others. We find ourselves lying as if we need something from someone else. We have an inferior complex. We see what other people are doing. We're not resting in the gospel or superior attitude. We're not resting in the gospel. Just look at the cross and what needed to be done for your sin. But we have to keep coming back to the gospel. We have to get used to and understand in greater depth our justification of our forgiveness and the imputation of his righteousness. Christ has made us righteous. God has freed us from things that enslave us. You have to work the gospel deep into your lives to understand the freedom that's already yours. Verse five, for through the spirit, through the work of God, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 6a, I'm gonna do for half the verse now. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts, has any value for anything. It is by faith, he says. And we await by his spirit. The righteousness, look what it says, we have hope to see. Well, what does that mean? I thought the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. Yes. But it's not done. Not in the sense where righteousness needs to be more righteousness, but the fact that we have the imputation of Christ's righteousness now. But Paul is saying there's a hope. That someday when we will see him face to face, before the judgment throne of God, when we stand before him and we are not righteous in ourselves, and but Christ will stand up for us as our defense and say, I am his or her righteousness. That's the hope. And it's not like a five-year-old waiting for Christmas, hoping they get that gift. It is the assured hope. That's what the Bible talks about, hope, as an assured hope. He's saying we are to live today. Listen, we are, live, we are to live today knowing we are and always will be a complete beauty in the eyes of God, loved by him eternally. But someday, we will see him face to face. So it's not just waiting with this rational thought in the head. It's a hope of the final verdict of righteousness that will be ours not because we earned it, but because Christ earned it for us. We do not work for it, we wait for it by faith. We do not strive anxiously to secure it by our good deeds. We have faith in the promise that Christ has secured it for us. And that hope should change the way we see life, the way we see the world, our worldview. Imputed righteousness will someday become consummated righteousness in the future. That's what he means. Stand firm. Don't fall away. And look, run well. You're running well. Who hindered you from what? Obeying the truth. The Christian life is in many places in Scripture is equated to a a run. Not, Not a short distance run. Not a sprint, but a long distance. A marathon. And if anybody's ever done any running, I've done a little bit of running. The longer you run, the more you may have a problem, right? First five minutes, I feel pretty good. 10, 15, 20, and all of a sudden, my knee starts to hurt. I'm like, all right, let me walk a little bit, right? Ancient runners in those days, they didn't run in a track, from what I read this week. 
A lot of them in the ancient times would run to a post and then back distance. It was easy for that, those people who would run would, would, especially around the post, they're coming back, trip one another and get in each other's way. And that's what he's saying. You're running well. Who hindered you? Who tripped you up from running so well? Who tripped you up? For you're now not what? Obeying. So tripping up, not running the race and enduring the way they ought to is because they are not obeying the truth. Okay? They're not obeying the truth of the gospel, of the, of the, of the justification by faith alone. They're not running the race. They're not obeying it. Paul's not saying that we now have to be justified by obeying the truth. He's saying that we need to obey the truth by remembering our justification. That's what he's saying. When, when it comes to living for Christ, we obey the truth of the gospel. What we believe and how we behave is not detached. The, the, it's unbreakable bond between what we think about our justification, what we believe about our justification, and the way in which we live and the way in which we grow. We talk about this all the time. We grow in the gospel. We grow by grace, not by putting ourselves under the law. Okay? Is not merely, Christian is not merely a belief system. It is application. It, it, is, it is walking and living and obeying, which we'll see in a moment. Now, there's a book called A Gospel Primer. A lot of you have it because I love to give it out. It's by a man by the name of Milton Vincent. Gospel Primer. Awesome book. And what he does in that book is he reminds us that preaching to the gospel is important, that we need to do it every single day. Daily preach the gospel to yourself. Here's a little bit of what he says. When we preach the gospel to ourselves daily, we are rehearsing its benefits. It will powerfully enrich your life in every area. It provides a lens through which I can now view my trials. It nurtures the bond that unites me and my brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. And I also keep myself well-versed in the raw materials of the gospel with which I may actively love them in Christ. Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. <laughs> this is what he says. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminder regarding the glory of my God and the gravity of my sin and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Also, the gracious love of God lavished on me because of Christ's death is always humbling to remember, especially when it's viewed against the backdrop of hell that I deserve. Preaching the gospel to myself every day reminds me of God's astounding love for me and also of His infinite worthiness to be loved by me because... Above all else, I should say, I find myself sinning less, but just as importantly, I find myself recovering my footing more quickly after sinning due to the immediate comfort found in the gospel, end quote. I know it's a long quote, but that's a great quote. Preach the gospel. Obey the gospel is to remind yourself to Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Verse 8. This is not from God. This is not the one from who calls you. God didn't call you into his grace by your merit and work. This is not him. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf. You know how yeast works? Put a little bit in. Just a little bit of works justification. You ruin it. Just a little bit. I, I just have to do this for God to love me. You ruin it. I have confidence in the Lord. Where's his confidence? In them? In their deeds? 
Where is his confidence? In the Lord. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling will bear the judgment, the penalty, whoever he is. God sustains. I'm confident in the Lord. Uh, that God has poured out his grace into your hearts. And that you will remain steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15. But if I, brothers, verse 11, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, if I'm still preaching circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. The Judaizers were preaching circumcision, law-keeping, and faith. Paul is preaching faith alone in Christ alone. And so, well, why would that bring persecution? Think about that for a minute. To preach law, to preach do and don'ts as a matter of justification is easier as human beings to take, to swallow. Why? I did something. How hard is it to accept something when, you, when you're down and out, you have no place to turn? It's easy to say, I did my part. I feel better about myself. I feel better that I did my part. Give and take. It helps the, the ego, the, the human psyche. Paul's saying, don't bother. You can't help yourself at all. You are done. There is nothing. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. You need Christ. You can never earn it. That will bring persecution. I don't care what religion there is in the world. There are lots of them. But they are based upon what you do, not what Christ has done. He says, listen, I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned to death. I've been dragged out of cities. Why? Because I was so wonderfully wonderful? No, because he was preaching Christ alone and faith alone in Christ alone. Come to the cross. Verse 12, I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Yes, exactly what he said. I know he didn't go there. Yep. I love reading commentaries on this verse. It's hysterical. Well, Paul didn't really, that's a different word. It's one, you know, they come, you know, he didn't really mean it. It wasn't like he was actually telling them to do it. Like, duh. Is it because I'm from this, you know, downstate that I see the sarcasm? Uh, can you see the sarcasm? Like, if you think circumcising your private part is getting you righteous, you'll get even more righteousness if you do the whole thing. So go ahead. Just keep doing it. Now, Paul's, uh, John Stott says this. This is, a, this is a wish born not out of a thirst for revenge, but deep love for God, for the people of God. Timothy George writes this. It had to be said, and it was right for him to say it, because a lesser rebuke would have singled, signaled an unconscionable compromise and retreat, end quote. That's what Paul's saying. Look, if they want to really mess with you, if they're going to mess with the gospel, if they're going to add circumcision, just do yourself a favor. Let's go back to verse 6, and then we'll jump to verse um, 13. Oh, I don't have verse 6 up there, but uh, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, here's the the crux of it all. In verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what counts? Faith working through what? Family? Love. Romans 
5 and 6, Paul says, Grace is free. Grace is great. Grace is given as a gift in Jesus Christ. Grace alone, but nothing you've earned. And then in chapter 6, it opens up with saying, yeah, I know what some of you are going to say. You're going to say, if this grace is so free and this grace is so great and you don't have to earn anything, chapter 6, verse 2, should we now continue to sin that grace may abound? And what's his answer? No, no. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The relationship to your sin has been broken. The power has been broken. The penalty has been broken. We're dead to sin. It's not our master anymore. If you keep doing that, you're going back to your master. And he's saying the same thing here. The only kind of justifying faith that is worth anything is the kind of faith expressing itself through love. Love to God, love for others. Justifying faith works and empowers love. It doesn't mean that, as some traditions teach, justification is by faith in Christ and love. Love and, and love, justification and love together is what justifies. That's not what he's saying. Faith is faith, love is love. We are justified by grace through faith, a faith that indeed is active in love, leading to our sanctification, Christ-likeness. Now catch this. The real faith that alone justifies is never alone love is the outworking of genuine faith luther said this he who wants to be a true christian or to belong to the kingdom of christ must be truly a believer but he does not truly believe if works of love do not follow his faith end quote you will know that you are walking in real gospel freedom paul is saying when you're growing in love We are most free when we understand that this gift of grace, this gift of grace, God's love, which enables us and fills us with his love. And we will then be able to love others. Well, how does that work? If we are walking in not enough freedom, and we all go back and forth, I think, a little bit. Like there are times in our life that we we feel like we need the approval of others or we're lying because we think we need someone, not resting in our identity, Okay. And what happens is we are trying to earn, we are trying to get love, get acceptance, get approval, get value that we matter. We're trying to get all that by what we do. What we're saying to God is, I want you to give that to me because of what I've already done. So what we're doing is we're using God to get something from God. Love, value, treasure, whatever it is, we're getting it to get God to love us and therefore we're using him. But when the hope of the gospel settles into our hearts and we see the grace and the beauty of God, we love him for who he is. In the gospel, we see that Christ has died for us and valued us not by what we bring to him. We can't bring him anything. We have been loved eternally without merit of our own. And to the degree we see that gospel truth, we respond in the same kind. Now we can serve God not by what, for what he is going to give to me as far as my own justification by my works. We love him for what he has done. We love him for what he's already done. And, you know, I thought about that this week. I was mentioning it to the other pastors. And I thought, well, there may be somebody here today that thinks, you know what, I'm going to love God with all my heart. I want to ask you this. Why? Are you loving God with all your heart so that he will love you? So that he will accept you? So that he will give you eternal life? Or are you loving God because he first loved us? 
But just like the Galatians, we have been liberated from legalism, but what? Don't use your, legal, don't use your freedom, what? For an opportunity to flesh. Look at verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers, sisters. Do not use your freedom. You've been set free. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity, an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. There we are again, serve one another. The flesh, the part of us that's self-indulgent, the part of us that's prideful, the part of us that is self-asserting, self-proclaiming, the corrupt, prideful life, wants to live independently of God. Don't, don't, don't give that an opportunity. The word opportunity, interesting word, or indulge in some translation, comes from a military term. It's a base of operation. Don't let that take root. You're free. You're a child of God. God has already accepted you. Don't use your freedom to indulge in your sin. Jesus said everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. If we are free, we are free to love. Real freedom comes not from the freedom to do what I want, but the freedom from sin to not, to, not sinning. And anyone, anyone who says that the gospel encourages us to live sinfully doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't understand the power of the gospel. But if we understand the gospel and allow the love of God to have his power and his rule in our life, we'll grow in love with one another. How's your love doing? Very interesting. Look with me again at verse 13. The word serve in verse 13 is the Greek verb for the word slave. Through love, Paul says, you're not only a slave to Christ, which he says in other scriptures, but he actually is saying in verse 13, but through love, slave one another. Slave one another. You're slaves to one another. That's the glorious good news of the gospel, that you've been justified by Christ alone, you've been set free from the bondage, and is to be understood by slavery of love to one another. Slavery to love is not a constraint of freedom. It's the means of its achievement. That's the, the paradox of the Christian faith. For the whole law, verse 14, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see what Paul is doing? He's saying the flesh, the, the, the self-justifying flesh, is an enemy of relationships. A gospel community, your self-centered and passions and your own desires will wreck, wreak havoc on relationship. The flesh is always looking for a beachhead in our lives. But we got to stand firm in the gospel. So the freedom that we have is, is freedom in Christ to love God. But on the other hand, it's freedom to love and serve one another. That's so, so important. It's not about you. The freedom is about Christ. The freedom is about loving one another. And the world, Paul says in 1 Corinthians for though I am free from all, I've made myself a slave to all that I might win more of them. He says, I am, I am bound to Christ and I am bound to love others. Do you, do you say I'm a Christian? I'm a slave to Christ. I'm a slave to love. I'm a slave to Jesus and I'm a slave to love one another. Is that how you identify Christianity? That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that clearly. Now, he's not, he's not contradicting himself. He's not saying, listen, uh, you're not under the law. Anyone's obligated to the law. I've got to keep the law. You're not going to keep the law. And then he says, look what he says at this end. Uh, you shall love your neighbor. Excuse me. Verse 14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor. So we're under the law. We're not under the law. What, what are you saying, Paul? Look what he says. The doing of the law, trying to be justified back in verse 3, 
doing the law, trying to be justified under verse 3, is putting yourself under the law, doing the law to be justified. Here he says, the law is fulfilled. The work of justification is doing its work, and the law is fulfilled by loving one another. And the contrary to what some people teach, you know, as a Christian, when you become a Christian, I just read this this week on Facebook, so it's kind of fresh. The law of God has nothing to do with you at all. I'm like, really? The law of God has nothing to do with me whatsoever. So just go and live what you want. Oh, no, you can't do that. Then the law of God does have something to do with me. If it's motivated by love, it'll be the proof of my justification. Who defines love anyway? Do you define love or does God define love? If you have a Bible, open up to Romans 13 and we're, we're almost finished. Romans 13. This is a great verse. Romans 13, 8 says this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Got it, Paul. That's the, that's the command. That's what I need to do. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We heard that already. Good. Verse 9 of chapter 13. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, that's the Ten Commandments, by the way, the moral statute of God's law, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfillment of the law. See what he's doing? So I love my neighbors so much, when they go on vacation next week, I'm breaking into their house, I'm taking their TV. Out of love. I just love them so much. I love my neighbors so much that I'm going to take his wife to be my wife. In love. No. That's not the way it works. Yes, we cannot gain acceptance of God by keeping the law, but yet once we have been accepted by God, we obey the moral law out of love out of grace, out of gratitude for him who has accepted us, died for us, rose for us. He has given us the spirit to enable us. Romans again, God had done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. Not weakened by the law, it's weakened by flesh, by sin. He did this by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Listen, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We'll see that next week. Legalism. Legalism is distorting the nature of God because the moral law is a reflection of his nature. Legalism is distorting the, God himself, the nature of God, and distorting justification that we could somehow live a right life. Antinomianism or license is also distorting the law of God, thinking that you are the law. And that we could just throw off anything God says. We are not under the law. We are freed from the bondage of the law in order for the law with our new hearts, our new nature, in order to fulfill the law and the power of his spirit. In Romans 2, Paul talks about even the Gentiles had the moral law of God written on their heart. When Cain murdered his brother, he was accountable for murder before the moral law was given to Moses. So don't let anyone tell you that you're a Gentile, the law has nothing to do with you. Yes, it does. 
The civil law, maybe not, definitely not. And the ceremonial law, Christ fulfilled. But the moral standard of God is not a yoke we put on. It is something David says that's sweet to our lips. First John says it's not burdensome to us. Why? Because we love God, because God first loved us. We've been born of his spirit. We've been set free from sin, from the bondage of sin, the power of sin, and soon to be the presence of sin. And now in obedience and gratitude and love for our God and all that he's done for us, we say, lead me, guide me. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you get it mixed up, you'll fall into legalism. If you get it mixed up, you'll fall into antinomianism. Okay? Be very, very careful. But to just disregard it is antinomianism, license, and to say I'm under it, I must keep it in order to be accepted by God, that's legalism. It is a road, it is a path, it is a a, a track in which we follow because of what Christ has already done for us. Do you understand that? That's really important. Very important. We are free from the curse. We are free from the wrath. We are freed not to indulge the flesh. We are freed not to misuse our neighbor, but to love our neighbor. We are freed to love God, to obey God. But if you bite and devour one another, verse 15, watch out, you don't consume each other. Bite and devour, it goes back to, he's talking about animals. that It would just rip each other apart. License can be used. If you think I can do what I want, I'm going to be selfish. I'm not going to love. It's going to destroy Christian community. That's what he's saying. And we'll have to come back to that. We are out of time. Let me, let me end this way as the band comes up. Come on up. Give me one more minute as the band comes up. Let me finish this. And this is really important. I want to finish with this. If you and I find ourselves, we, we find that our love is running cold. We find that our love is running dry. If we find ourselves to be unloving, the solution for you and I, the antidote for you and I is not to say, I need to love better. I need to love more. The solution, the antidote is I need to look to Christ. I need to look to Christ who gave us an unlosable, unshakable acceptance before the Father. As we dwell on his eternal love, his his never-ending acceptance of us by his perfect life and his toning death, that love, his love, will melt our hearts. It will overflow to love each other. It is not by doing It is by resting and understanding the gospel. And when we do that, then we can obey. Remember, religion is I obey. God accepts and loves me. The gospel is God accepts and loves me in Christ, and therefore I obey. To get that mixed up is to fall into legalism or antinomianism. Let us pray. God, we're thankful that we don't have to be afraid. That Jesus has already taken the curse of the law. The lawbreaker, that's us so that we can come close to you. God, we pray that you would help us to relish in the gospel. You will help us to look to the cross. You will help us to understand deeper and more deeper the love of the gospel, so out of gratitude and love and the sweetness of your, of your commandments, we shall walk with you, follow you, and obey you. Lord, thank you that you have accomplish what we could never accomplish thank you jesus for your perfect moral record has been counted to us thank you spirit of god to help us to see the beauty of christ and now as we respond help us to drink in the truth of the gospel and may may we leave here more sanctified more obedience not because we gain your love but because we have been given your love we pray in jesus name amen